You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, it's treat time because my friend Jill Weinbanks is back. She is... No, strike that. You you can see her on MSNBC as a legal analyst. You can read uh, her book, The Watergate Girl. You can hear her and her podcast, Sisters-in-Law. She is a treasure, right? And talented young women today do not know how much they owe to people like Jill. And that's as it should be, but only is because of decades of incredible work and commitment um, uh, to people all over the country. Jill, welcome back. Oh my gosh, thank you. That was the nicest. Thank you so much. That was really sweet. Hey, Jill, I only have two little topics for us today. One is, <laughs> only two? you know, the, to the Trump legal drama, and the other is this recently, you know, completed Supreme Court session. Just two little topics. <laughs> two, two little problems, I think you meant, instead of topics. I am so furious about this, this, this Supreme Court. And I, and I want to, you know, I promised the people at the beginning of the show, I wouldn't just be angry for four hours. Um, but, you know, with stealing, uh, the right to reproductive choice from people last term to the just contempt for Americans and for the law this term, I don't know how we're supposed to, um, I mean, John Roberts is crying because he thinks we don't think the court is legitimate. Well, you know what? Then act like you're legitimate. You said it all. There's nothing to add to that. It is truly horrific. The Supreme Court deserves our contempt and our disrespect. They have not earned respect. They are behaving in ways that just say, you know, when you go to law school, one of the first things you learn is stare decisis, which is the respect for the past, for opinions, and that what is decided is decided. You can't undo it. And then you get a Supreme Court that says, well, except if I don't like it, and then I'm going to just change it, and I'm going to ignore all the precedent that is in the court records. And that's what they're doing. I mean, there's no other way you can go and say affirmative action, gone. Abortion rights, gone. The rights of the LGBT community, gone. And we're on a slippery slope to a lot of other people's rights. And that's what people should recognize. You may not be part of the LGBTQ community, but I guarantee you that service to you may be at risk if someone doesn't like you or the group that you're in. I, I, you know, I spent a chunk of my life working in parts of the world that are not democracies. And I learned Pretty quickly, there's a difference between the rule of law and rule by law. You know, in the rule of law, you pay attention to precedent. The law is an intricate, complicated uh, structure that's built up through uh, argument and facts um, uh, and, and law over time. And it's careful and it's not partisan. Then there is, I'm making the rules, you have to do what I say. And that is that it's a, one creates freedom, the other destroys it. And we are on the destroying it end now. We are. Um, there's no other way of looking at what the court has done. This week alone, the, the cases were just all predictable. There, you know, I guess if I'm looking for 
some good news for a silver lining. It's a case called Moore versus Harper, which one feared might go in the direction of the MAGA crowd, but in which the court actually said, oh, that's a step too far. And that was a case that would have said that the state legislature is totally independent of any court review and that they could make the rules for federal elections however they wanted, and it couldn't be looked at even by their own state Supreme Court, and even when it was clear that what they had done was a violation of the state constitution. So that would have been a horrendous decision. And luckily, the court threw it out. It was a theory that was being used by John Eastman to try to overturn the 2020 election. And if the court had accepted it, that would have been game over for democracy and elections. Yeah, I think they just... um I mean, John Roberts is, as he's proven in, in, in this job, he's not a jurist, he's a politician, and he has looked at the contempt that the country has for him, and he blinked. I mean, it, it wasn't, I mean, Moore versus Harper should have been unanimous. It wasn't unanimous. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, you're, you're taking away, it's sort of like how he did in affirmative action. He said, well, you know, it's not like, it's totally barred. Um, you know, schools can sort of look at things. But then he said, but they can't really use all these other methods to achieve what we're saying they can't do today. So he gave a little bit and then he pulled it away. And it's the yeah. same thing on all these other issues. The same thing. You're right. On more, it should have been unanimous. And the fact that there were not means that there's at least two people on the court who could be, you know, working to get other people to go along with them and overturn yeah. it. And and that I am certain that in cities like Chicago and all around the world, the um, all around the country, the MBEWBE set asides that were put in place so that when, you know, the taxpayers spend their money in a city, that money somehow finds its way to all parts of the city and that the owners of businesses are women and people of color, that that that's dead man walking now, that that's that falls quickly. Um, yeah, probably. Um, although maybe you could make an argument there that it's a question of how you apportion tax money and um, create fairness in that. Maybe there's still an argument left, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure, as I said, when you look at what they did with uh, LGBTQ, that they're going to expand that to, okay, so a web designer doesn't have to make a website for and by the way, they should have never taken the case because it wasn't a case or controversy, which is right. again, talk about rule of law. Rule of law says that you have to have a case or controversy. That's what the Constitution says. And there was no controversy because nope. she wasn't asked to do anything. So they allowed a preemptive strike against, you know, the use of the uh, public accommodations law. So that's that that in itself is something that's concerning. Uh, it's so concerning that you know what in um, if somebody wants to complain about it in, in my state of Illinois where we have a law like that um, I would strongly suggest the governor and everybody else ignore the Supreme Court. We are at, at that horrible point, that dangerous point. 
Yeah, um, I, I, I hate to advise anyone to ignore anything, but right? it's so it's wrong. It, it, it is terrible. It is terrible. terrible. There's a, a lot wrong with it. I, I think it's time to really start supporting looking at expanding the court or limiting its jurisdiction or doing something. We can't keep letting this remarkably conservative court who has members who were pushed through that shouldn't have been on the court. I mean, let's face it. Obama was denied the last appointment that he was entitled to. And we got a horrible conservative. And then all of a sudden, the rules no longer applied because Trump wanted to appoint someone in the last minutes of his presidency, and he got away right. with it. So that's, again, not the rule of law. No, I mean, I, I don't imagine a scenario where a Democrat, if, if the Republicans control the Senate, a Democrat, a Democratic nominee could ever be approved ever again. They just won't do it. Oh, gosh. You're making me depressed. And it's the fourth of July. I mean, I don't want to make you depressed, Joe, because I think what we're going to do instead is just win and, and, you know, break the hold of these. Remember, this is a minority of Americans imposing their will on everybody else. And like, that's not who we are. That's never been who we are. We don't like that. Right. Right. I'm all for you. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on this. I think voting is going to be the answer and getting out the vote is going to be much easier now given that you know in the same way that um Dobbs led to a huge turnout i think all of these cases are going to lead to a huge turnout i think so too and they're so stupid and cynical joe they thought they thought Dobbs. oh you know it's just a news story we'll get through this in a news cycle right they're like they're, they're so ignorant of the actual harm that they're causing to people all over the country that they think, eh, it's just, we can, you know, it'll pass. No, it won't. No, I I agree with you completely. I think we, I think getting out the vote is is the easy part and supporting President Biden, um, who I'm sure will find a way around the student debt loan. Um, Yeah, but it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. I think. Yeah. But you're so right, Jill, about about, you know, the contempt of the court and the and and just we, you know, we shouldn't walk away from the rule of law just because they have. And I thank you for talking me off that cliff. Um, (laughs) Right. But but wow. On the cliff, because there's more coming next term. I mean, they're not done. No. And and this court is young enough to outlast us and that's so how do we fix it i mean how do we get senator durbin our senator and joe biden uh, you know uh uh, committed to reforming the court through law I think it's time for people to speak up and say, you know, it's okay to do this. And there is at least one solution that has a logical um, component to it. And that is that when the court was set at nine, there were nine circuits. And each justice was assigned to oversee a circuit for emergency appeals and things. Well, we aren't nine circuits anymore. We're now 13. So why couldn't we have 13 justices? It's an uneven number. It's geographically ostensible. It 
matches the population. It matches the court's possible um, um, busy schedule. So that makes sense. And makes perfect let, sense. Right. Now, of course, we're getting close to an election. And of course, I'd say, well, we can't you know, have it done. Yeah, let's get it passed now to be effective with the next president. Now, that's scary because we don't know who the next president's going to be. But that's if that doesn't get Democrats out to vote, the fact that a new president could be a Republican appointing more people to the court, that is... I agree. It, then we don't. Then we don't deserve our democracy. Yep. All right. Well, speaking of Republicans who might be president, let's turn for a minute and just catch me up on on the former president's legal woes because I can't keep up. I I I I didn't really understand why all of the, for instance. Um, attention uh, about the, the classified documents that Donald Trump was banding about w- was to, in Florida when, in fact, he was banding them about in New Jersey. But maybe well, Jack Smith is smarter than, than, than like, he's like 11 steps ahead of how I can think about this. I, I am going with the fact that Jack Smith is really smart and is a good chess player, a good strategic thinker, that he knows evidence that we don't know, that he understands. And, for example, you know, we have this great tape recording that seems even just listening to its words without having been in the room, all the seven million different excuses that Donald Trump is now offering as well. I, you know, I was just using bravado. Um, all of those things don't counter the actual words that he said. But also, I'm sure Jack Smith has interviewed the people who were in the room when he did it. Now, why he chose not to have that as a second indictment simultaneously, you don't have to have everything in one case. If you find crimes committed in different venues, then you can indict in New Jersey for the disclosure of this material, and you can indict for the other stuff in Florida where it happened. And then you have two simultaneous trials. So I I think that makes... And insurance against a difficult judge, too. I'm sorry, what? I didn't hear that. And possibly insurance against a difficult judge who we may have in Florida. Well, we may have in Florida, but it is true that those crimes were committed in Florida. So Mm -hmm. you pretty much have to bring it in Florida. And so then the next question is, okay, this other case was happened in New Jersey. We have a chance to have that case tried and maybe get everything moved to New Jersey if something bad happens in Florida. But um, I don't know how long he's going to wait on bringing this other case. And we also have, don't forget, the fake electors scheme. That seems like it's moving forward and there might be an indictment in that. And that could be in Washington, where a lot of it was coordinated and happened yep. while he was still resident in Washington. So there's there's all of that. And there's, of course, just the January 6th, the mother, he was part of the um, the conspiracy to take down the government and could be guilty of seditious conspiracy without having been in the Capitol itself, even though he wanted to be in the Capitol. 
Um, he wasn't permitted to go there by Secret Service. So there's a lot of crimes coming. And, of course, there's still Georgia. Don't forget about Georgia. That's nope. supposed to happen sometime before August, uh, before the end of August. So we're really getting close. It's July 4th almost. And, yeah. you know, we're, we're the courts down in, in Fulton County are on alert. So it could happen any time now. Jill, what do you make of the Washington Post's reporting that the FBI slow walked these investigations and was only sort of shamed into it by the work of the January 6th committee? Um, it, it surprises me in a way because I still see the FBI as a non-political investigative law enforcement branch. And in all my experience as a federal prosecutor, I never encountered, including on Watergate, I never encountered a situation where I felt like they were slow walking or refusing or taking a political position. I just, that just didn't seem right. So I'm surprised about that. And yet, in some ways, I am definitely not surprised. And um, it could be true. It certainly counters this deep state argument that the FBI was out to get Donald Trump. It certainly shows that they were actually trying to help Donald Trump. So um, I don't know how the appointee was ahead of it. Exactly. That's all. But like I, I. don't want to, I don't want to, having said that, I don't want to go there and say Christopher Ray is slow walking this for Donald Trump. I don't actually believe that. I just think there are institutional um, inertia, right, about doing this that, that would have been hard to overcome. Um, I, I'm surprised that they, for example, in the old days, they took instructions from prosecutors and prosecutors acted on reports of facts and mm-hmm. facts matter. I'm still just not sure why the facts that were evident to everyone that were publicly reported, why that didn't cause them to go ahead and investigate immediately. It was obvious that there was something that needed investigated. Yeah, unless there's a habit of investigating, you know, from the bottom up to try and turn people, and that just meant starting somewhere else. I mean, I, I well, guess I don't know. I want to give them the benefit of, of some doubt, but at least I think they're in it now, doing what they should do. It seems that they are. Um, and, of course, there's also the fact that Jack Smith has a grand jury and that Jack Smith is calling in witnesses. Um yeah. You know, in the normal course of things, the FBI would talk to a witness before they come to a grand jury. It wouldn't be their first recounting Uh, of the story. Um, So I'm assuming the FBI is cooperating and working with Jack Smith. Um, We certainly in Watergate had the full cooperation of the IRS, the department, every department, including the FBI, um, doing what they were supposed to do. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't have enough. I mean, the, the, the reporting disturbed me a little bit, but I, it hasn't, it hasn't shaken my sense that they are all doing what they're supposed to do. And this is just painstaking and, um, 
uh, you know, I mean, we had a president try and overthrow the democracy. That doesn't happen every day. You saw it once before, but so it's, you know, twice in our lifetime. That's not every day. Um, so uh, this is much more serious, I would say. I mean, yes, there was obstruction of justice. There was misuse of power. There was misuse of government agencies. It was serious. But this is trying to change the election. That's really serious. That, yeah. that changes everything. Everything. So I, I assume they are um, going slowly and carefully. But I also, Jill, I, I get you, what's your bet today? I bet that Mr. Trump is going to be convicted. I believe in the will, I think that he may end up pleading guilty because the conviction is assured. I believe that juries take their role very seriously and are instructed that they can only make their decision based on the evidence in the courtroom. And that much like the Manafort juror who was a Trump supporter, who was interviewed by the press afterward and said, I believe everything Donald Trump says, but I had to do my duty as a juror and I listened to the evidence in the courtroom and Manafort was guilty on all counts. And that's how I voted. And I believe that even a, a Trump loyalist will see the truth when presented and will not accept his flimsy excuses for what he did. And we'll also see how dangerous his actions were to us in the past and how dangerous he would be to be a future incumbent. Imagine if he were the one now who had to deal with what's happening in Russia, who had to deal with what's happening in Ukraine. It's scary. And so I, I think people, at least the jurors, will see it for what it is. And that gives me some, some courage and confidence for the future of America. Yeah, me too. Me too. I think people are complicated Good. and smart and do interesting things and can overcome their prejudices when they're given the evidence. Exactly. I mean, facts are facts. And so, as I say, we're going to have not just his excuses for what he did, we are going to have the actual people who were in the room saying, I wasn't a newspaper clipping, I saw a red folder that said secret, and that's what he showed me. So I believe we're, we're going to be better off because of it. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I said I wanted to talk to you about those two things, but I think it's worth uh, just a little bit of optimism about the incredible job that is being done by the Biden administration, the last Congress, the 117th, and we're seeing the results of that now. And and in Democratic-led states around the country, we're just sort of beginning to see this huge divide where, like, maternal mortality rates in red states are going up because of what they're doing for reproductive health in women. And you know what? Um Health is improving in blue states. I mean, just the just in the the just regular measures of like you know, do people live and not die? You're beginning to see that divide based on policy changes. And the, again, as you say, facts are facts. Exactly, exactly. I, I'm you know, I was a Biden delegate um, for the last election, and yep. I have only seen him affirm everything I believed in terms of what he could accomplish. And he has done way more than anyone 
could have ever expected in a time of the political divide that we have in our country right now. So hopefully um, we will find ways to continue. And uh, let's let's deal with the elephant in the last two minutes. Joe's old, right? I mean, he's really kind of old for this job. And four years from now, he's going to be four years older. It's a risk, but he's done a fabulous job, right? Like you can't, you can't complain about the job that's been done. No, um, I, I guess my only thing is, and I was lucky enough to see him on Wednesday when he was in Chicago. Mm-hmm. He is still really lively and sprightly and energetic. And more so, listen to Donald Trump. And so that's who he's running against. Just pay attention to yeah. his health and his mental capacity. He's not mentally competent. Probably never was, but he certainly isn't now. And so whatever you think, your choice is between Trump and Biden. And that's an easy choice to make. Very easy. But I think Joe, I mean, Joe's a good choice, even though he's old. He's really done a very good job. He's done an incredible job, much more than you could have ever possibly expected to have him do. It's, yeah. I mean, and that's despite his age, I guess. Um, it's done. What What can you say? Um, I, you know, you know, it's hard to even remember that we were in the COVID crisis we were in when he took office. That nobody had a vaccine. Right, the economy was really in a shambles. I mean, it's incredible what's happened in a few years, and Americans are are like grouchy about it, which I don't get. <laughs> um, well, I, I don't either. I mean, we are much better off than we were. So let's just keep that in mind and much better off than we would have been if he hadn't been the intervening force. Yeah, so absolutely. let's let's just go with that. That's my feeling. Well, uh, Jill, as always, it's fabulous to talk to you. I'm so grateful every time you make the time to come and join me. My pleasure. All right, we'll talk anytime. Again. Great, thank you, and thank you for All your right, good everybody. questions and your good insight and your energy. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. All right, everybody, that is the fabulous Jill Weinbanks. We're going to take a break for uh, the news, and when we come back, I just want to spend a little time talking about North Carolina with you. Don't go away. <laughs> 